The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. There was just something in the early stages of when this Bitcoin technology came to fruition and it was that, you know, you could create digital scarcity for the first time. And that was novel, but everything else was kind of like toy-like, like it wasn't really mature. We're just now kind of seeing that maturation, but that digital scarcity, we can apply that again to, to anything. Hey, hey, welcome one and all to this week's podcast. Really, really looking forward to this. This is going to be some good times here. So what I'm going to do is cut to the chase today so you get to hear my conversation with Stevie Giassi, founder of Legaler and Legaler Aid, among many other things. So what excites me about this? I there, There's too much. Honestly, there's too much. So let me give you a quick synopsis of what this is going to look like, what it's going to sound like. It's a wild one. So we go from Stevie's early days of touring the world as a tennis pro, and there's a, a Rafi Nadal reference here, to him running over a dozen souvenir shops in Australia at the ripe old age of 16, to him playing a harmonica solo in front of a sold out crowd at the Metro in Sydney with his buddies from Silverchair. If you remember them, a uh, special bonus to you, and Oasis, of course, and there's more. Then came that natural progression to legal tech, of course, right? That makes perfect sense. But what we really get to do is unpack what he's doing right now, what he's learned over the years in terms of his businesses and growing his businesses, coming with this new lens on this world, puts him in a unique spot. So this is really kind of cool to see. So one of the things he's doing is bringing these newfangled technologies that we often talk about, like NFTs. So those non-fungible tokens that we've talked about, that I've talked about, blockchain-based unique art, and that's the first place you're gonna start to see it. But what is he doing with this brand new technology to help people, to straight up help people in desperate need to keep their roof over their heads? And all of that is just in the first five minutes. <laughs> okay, so the last call out here. I toss out one or two Persian-Iranian references. Most importantly, the food. If you have not had good Persian food recently, go get it after this. I'm telling you, it's it's probably some of the most underrated food out there. All right, let's get started. The Hearing. Hey, Stevie, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Joe. It's great to be here. Of course, my goodness. All right, so let me let me preface this because I'm I'm definitely very excited about getting into some conversations with you around legal tech. But um, I think of you honestly. I think of you as the rock star of the legal tech world, and I'll tell you why. There's there's many accolades out there. I think about the Blockpreneur of the Year a few years ago, according to Blockchain Business Magazine. I've seen you grace the covers of many magazines in that shiny look. I've seen also some conferences you've been a part of. Clearly, including uh, Legal Geek, which is one of my favorite of the year, uh, right next to Iltacon. But there's there's way more. I mean, there's so much stuff that you are involved with that I see you across the industry, which is so fantastic. And but not to embarrass you, um, and we were talking about this not too long ago. In fact, uh, you have the voice of an angel. I honestly, <laughs> you have the voice of an angel. And I witnessed this. <laughs> the last time we were together was way too long ago. But you being in Australia and, and me either on the East Coast of the US or wherever I am, um, there was an amazing sort of jam session that we we're all a part of. Uh, uh, take you back, whatever it was, 16, 18 months ago, where we were all in New York City. It was you, me, and a whole group of people, including other legal uh, tech icons like Andy Wishart, uh, who's now at Agaloft, I think, and then Ed Sun at Factor. Um, those are some those are some crazy times. There were some fun times, and I'm looking forward to getting back to those things. <laughs> That, that is quite the kind kind, kind intro, Joe, and um, uh, I think those legendary karaoke nights uh, kind of live on and uh, I think we're waiting for the world to open up, not so much so legal tech can carry on, but so our karaoke jam sessions can uh, <laughs> continue. <laughs> no, no doubt. No, so I'm, I'm looking forward to that too. Um, all right. So before we get started, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background. Um, I did hear rumors at one point in time that you were, uh, you made a, a, a run at Wimbledon. Uh, in 2010 against Nadal, is that right? Or something along those lines? <laughs> no, didn't, didn't get quite that far, but the actual last uh, tennis tournament I played was it was in Barcelona and it was Nadal's, uh, he's a bit younger than me, so it was his coming out tournament, um, which he won, um, I think at the ripe age of maybe just turning 16, I think it was, and, and wow. I was probably about 20. And uh, Andy Murray was my hitting partner and training partner, which uh, we were living together 
in um in in, in Barcelona there just because I was trying to get some uh, extra uh, kilometers under my feet on the clay courts uh, in Australia we don't have uh, too many actually they're non-existent in Australia we're mostly grass and synthetic grass so that was a past life um, and um, you know a lot of that inspiration came from from my father who was from a family of professional athletes and my brother was a professional tennis player as well so um, I kind of really had had no choice. I was doomed from the start, but um, my, my dad was the captain of the um, Iranian uh, football team back in the seventies. Oh, I did and, not know yeah, that. And so, mashallah. Yeah. And so, <laughs> mashallah. Yeah. He he basically he um he, his three brothers were professional players as well, and his other brother was actually the the head of the the referee federation. So that might have helped. But um, wow. but basically, uh, he moved to Australia. Um, you know, immigrated here in the 70s uh, to kind of play football here. And that's how I was really fortunate to be kind of born in, in, in one of the really lucky countries. And so, yeah, so sports always been in our veins. And that's kind of, uh, I think, laid the, the platform for us to also then become entrepreneurs. Uh, you know, like I followed my dad's footsteps, uh, you know, from a very young age, he was an entrepreneur on the street selling kind of soap when he was about 11 by 13 he was kind of gathering the kids in the neighborhood and had them all out selling ice cream on his behalf so i think you could call that a franchise um, <laughs> and and you know that 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 kind of led to a lot of different entrepreneurial pursuits so that's kind of uh you know in terms of the background kind of going from sport to kind of being an entrepreneur we weren't really the uh i guess the academic type which you know i'm kind of surrounded by now which is kind of the cookie cutter you know going to law school um and and doing that type of thing so so yeah, so it was a very unique upbringing um, going from sport. And I think, you know, he, he really wanted us to kind of uh, follow in his footsteps to play sport, not just to kind of, um, you know, to, to win any accolades, but just for the life lessons. And I think that was really a, a good good grounding for, for me and my brother to kind of then go on into, into business life and just in life in general, there's a lot you can learn, um, you know, whether it's kind of applying yourself, dedication, kind of, you know, picking yourself up after kind of a bad loss or, um, you know, persevering. And, and I think that was something that, you know, to this day I kind of use as a, as a, um, a tool set, I guess, to kind of um, go on and, 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 um, and take on the challenges in life. So that's been quite interesting. But in terms of, um, to, to, yeah, but in terms of, you know, the, the business side of things, I grew up at, also at a very young age in in the family business which was a retail business um that my again father started um uh, pretty much when he went into his professional life uh he, he kind of founded um a really small humble gift store in in the city but what happened was there was um australia's bicentenary so celebrating 200 years of of, of the nation being formed and it was a big um uh, catalyst for tourism as well the japanese economy was kind of booming at the time and very quickly, uh, that business grew into, um, you know, about 16 retail stores that were essentially souvenir and gift stores. So we kind of pioneered that business in Australia and that really it took off. And, um, you know, I, I, when I was about 16, I was kind of managing about a hundred people in, um, in a, in a, in a retail kind of, uh, group, what? And then, uh, very quickly took that over big responsibilities at 16. Yeah, after after the tennis kind of, you know, in between that, it, it let me kind of, um, you know, pursue tennis full time. And then when I was 16, I, I moved to Florida, actually, and, and, and was training with um, my coach was Nick Voltaire, Axis coach. So I kind of based myself there. And, and when I came back, I took over the family business and, and we grew that to about 40 million in annual revenue. And, and it was really, again, a gangbuster time for retail because the tourism industry was booming. And we had the Olympics, we had, you know, the, the Rugby World Cup. And all these things were just, you know, great catalysts for, um, you know, driving tourism into Australia. And um, the core business grew to the point we've created all these supporting businesses. So I think one thing that, again, I was fortunate enough to have exposure to was um, a variety of businesses at a very young age. So um, the retail group uh, expanded into manufacturing. So we created our own products um, in Australia, in New Zealand. Um, you know, we, we created currency exchanges because we um, had, I guess, so much inflow of, of capital there. We, we created um, photo labs because we had so many tourists taking photos. So we created a, a chain of uh, photo labs at that time for developing photos back when people used, um, you know, uh, cameras, um, uh, analog cameras. And so, um, yeah, so it was a fascinating time. And that, again, just let me get my hands dirty in, in a bunch of different stuff, but definitely still nowhere near legal tech. <laughs> 
Wow, you have quite the background, no question. So I got to ask you a random question. Um, so Daryush or Mansoor when it comes to music in uh, the Persian community? Wow, how do you, how do you, how do you even know <laughs> that? Um, that's pretty fascinating. Talk about getting blindsided on a, on a podcast. But, um, <laughs> I, I'm, I think going back to the rock star thing, I, I, I did always, you know, I think I was a, a rock star in my own lunchbox. And so I, I, I think Daryush had the more, um, you know, rock star figure. He was a bit, you know, a bit, a bit edgier. Um, and so, um, yeah, I'm definitely camp Darius. And, and so, um, just a little okay. segue, I, <laughs> I, 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 I had a bunch of friends, um, and, and I did want to be, I think a rock star when I was a young age, and I had a bunch of friends from school that went on to become, you know, they had, they had quite a prominent band, um, in Australia and they, they did go on tour with some big bands like, um, Pearl Jam or Oasis, which, you know, I was, oh, wow. I was a massive fan of growing up and. And I got lucky enough that I took some time off from um, uh, after the retail stuff. I, I opened a hospitality group uh, up north in Australia, and I, I took a bit of time off. And, and they actually went on tour with all these bands, and I got to um, I got to grace the stage and the tour buses with a lot of these you know icons and trash some hotel rooms with Oasis and, and a few of those uh, a few of those guys. So yeah, so I got to I, and I and I got invited on stage one time to play a, a harmonica solo in front of a sold out crowd. Which is just a crazy thing, but but yeah, but it let it let me live vicariously through them for a very short moment in time, and um, it was it was super fun. So yeah, so that that was a whole nother little life I got to live. Um, for it went on for a few months, and I you know I got to kind of uh, do some do some fun things. So what did you what did you play in terms of music wise on stage with the harmonica? So there was one song in the catalog that they'd never played live, and um, they, they they promised that it was, it was kind of a thank you. Um, as again, we had we had a few months on tour with um, a couple of Australia's big bands, Powderfinger and Silverchair, and um, as a thank you, they they um, they sent me like this gift pack, which was kind of um, you know it, it said that a driver would pick me up from the hotel on this particular date. There'd be a flight waiting and a penthouse suite in uh, in Sydney. And there was a sold out concert at the Metro, which is where I grew up watching all the bands. And I thought that was kind of a bit of a joke. And I actually, <laughs> I turned up and um, I I wanted to be prepared. So I bought it because there's a harmonica solo in this song. And I was like, better, better stop at a music store. And, and I bought a harmonica uh, kit. And before I bought that, I actually didn't know there was a, uh, a different key for each harmonica. So it was actually, um, I was like, oh my God, what songs, like, you know, what key is this song in? <laughs> and so I still thought it was a joke, took the harmonicas to the concert and then they, um, they, you know, halfway through the, con the concert, they said, all right, we need someone to play a harmonica for this next song. And they actually just pushed me up out of the crowd. So it looked quite <laughs> like someone in the crowd just got up on stage and then, um, yeah, and then busted out this song. It was called Air, but I um I, I played just the harmonica solo, and it was pretty crazy. Now that I watch it back, where I actually had never played harmonica before, but somehow something came over me, and and it brought the house down to the point there was a review <laughs> the next the, the next day in the in faster what's it called uh, faster louder like the the big music magazine here where <clears throat> excuse me it said that a punter from the audience got up and brought the house down with a harmonica solo. So that was uh, my little flash in the pan of you know being a rock star. That is so cool. <laughs> so, are you just a, a blue Eminem guy then? <laughs> yeah, yeah. My, my <laughs> the demands is, that you I'm request with the, with the with the rider. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, <laughs> sorry. That's really cool, though. I man, I, I haven't lived that life. I would love to. Um, so, all right, let's get let's get real. I guess a little bit about um, Legaler, uh, your business. I'd love to hear a little bit more about what that is for those people that are not as familiar with the business. Uh, so, could you give us a little bit uh, of information on Legaler? Sure. Um, again, like um, you know, Legaler was born out of after that retail kind of um, era. We saw there was a bit of a sunset industry, and we were the first um, company in Australia to have voice over IP technology. So, um, you know, from the US, that was kind of a, a really burgeoning tech and it was going to replace, you know, the way people communicate over the phone. And we kind of, you know, invested into it and then started a telco. Um, so that was really the segue into kind of getting into communications and platforms. And again, at this point, the legal industry or, or just legal wasn't really on the radar. It was more around um, creating platforms and, and marketplaces and services and just kind of looking at what things we bring online. And my co-founder was, um, you know, he, he'd previously built platforms for the government. He'd kind of been in tech for a while. So he was kind of a technical co-founder. And, and really, um, we started looking at um, ways to kind of create platforms for service delivery. 
And so it was, it was an interesting, you know, um, I, I guess it's like now we can call it a bit of a stroke of luck, but basically um, between the lawyers we were working with ourselves for our, you know, establishing businesses and, and found that kind of process a bit clunky to also um, lawyers coming to us and really a lot of smaller lawyers looking for like marketing services and ways to kind of build websites and go digital. And we realized, you know, this was kind of an industry that the land, you know, this is kind of a, the land at time had forgotten in a sense, like, you know, it was really archaic. Um, a lot of these lawyers weren't learning, you know, marketing chops in school or, um, you know, you know, they weren't really um, that attuned to running the business of law. And so we thought, hey, we can help these um, kind of businesses. And that was really the segue. And, and, and Legally was kind of born as a really early part of, um, you know, getting into the legal industry really with something that could grow critically and have some network effects. And so we created a communication platform that's a secure communication portal for, for lawyers. And it kind of lets you schedule and then host and archive your meeting all in one place. So before those kind of, um, you know, Calendly and Zoom to plug in together, we were kind of creating these, uh, you know, in-browser kind of communication tools that really let uh, clients join the lawyers quite uh, frictionlessly. And, and now that's expanding. And, you know, the, obviously the pandemic's been a bit of a catalyst for for the growth of, of, of Legala. So, um, you know, it was great to preach about kind of, you know, taking legal services online, but really the pandemic, I think, showed the shortcomings and how far the legal industry had to go. Everything from courts shutting down to legal clinics, you know, being closed. Um, so yeah, essentially we're trying to take the legal industry uh, online and that's what Legala's um, kind of, you know, uh, North Star is, is really building tools to help lawyers kind of uh, move into the digital age. Really interesting. Um... Obviously, the pandemic certainly probably was, it's super unfortunate, clearly, but in terms of the business model, it definitely helped enable people, right, to uh, to jump online, to get things done like they hadn't been able to do before. Um, what was the response to the organization during the pandemic for you guys? Yeah, we were one of the first uh, companies to actually, um, I think across all industries, to provide uh, an offer really to help people. And uh, Bombad Broji was uh, in the legal industry, at least quite pivotal in, in creating a resources list. And so what we did was we created a free offer for any, uh, initially it was just solo to small firms up to 10 people. Then we opened up to the broader industry, whether it was a legal clinic, it was a non-for-profit. But essentially we, at, at the time, uh, you know, in, in a short space of um, a few months, we gave over $2 million worth of free licenses. So wow. it, was, it was a crazy period of, of growth. And then there was obviously um, some security issues with, with Zoom during that period as well. So that, that was another, you know, catalyst um, for, for people looking for uh, alternative solutions because a lot of law firms, mediators, their actual clients wouldn't um, let them use, um, you know, Zoom. So, so we had, we, we've, we've today, we're about, close to 10,000 um, firms over 120 different countries now. So um, again, our target market still the, the solos and small firms, but we're, we're expanding into newer products that are a bit more, um, uh, I guess, for the top end of town in terms of size. Uh, and that, that also includes like legal aid. So we're, we're kind of, we've, I think now got the whole market covered in terms of what we're offering in, in the broader sense, but, but generally legal was created for, um, you know, a nimble, a small firm to kind of just get up really quickly without any onboarding and be able to send a link to their client, have a booking page that they can book. And then, you know, you're all um, in one app. You're not kind of bouncing around from scheduling to a calendar to another application to kind of, you know, caption notes or information. And it's all um, in integrates into back office with an API as well. So that's kind of a, where the front of house, I guess, for a virtual law firm. And, and you know, the, the, the boring stuff, I guess, can kind of happen in the, in the manage, management tools and the practice management tools. Very cool. So I'm I'm definitely curious about the uh, the legal platform. So we've had platforms in the business and in other outside businesses for years and years and years. And all of a sudden, it's great to see that it's um, become a bit of a buzz. And you guys are clearly leading the charge in uh, this respect. Do you see that it's being sort of like an open platform where people can bring almost any API that they want, other data feeds, whatever the case is, to enhance their own data? Is that something that you guys are investigating or going down the road of? A little. So if you kind of look just in general at, um, you know, what we're trying to achieve, there's still so much in the legal industry that is kind of analog. Um, and again, even just until this pandemic, uh, there was, you know, judges making state orders or governors making state orders so people could sign their last will and testament with electronic signature that wasn't really kind of, you know, even legally um, uh, credible, right? So if you look at, um, you know, how much of 
things that are offline need to come online and become you know, digitized. Um, you know, even as an Australian living in, in the US, uh, previously, it's just crazy to see how many checks still get written and fly around. So, you know, there's, there's, a, yeah. there's a long way to go, you know, from paper contracts to the way referrals are made to law firms. So again, we just spoke about person meetings becoming, you know, digital meetings and online scheduling, uh, physical courts becoming online courts and, you know, transcriptions becoming typed, um, you know, going to, to, you know, AI and becoming digitized. So there's so much room to improve things. And so, yeah, we're, we're laying the initial foundation because of, I guess, a communication uh, portal. It's kind of like the four pillars of your firm. It's like, you know, the walls of your virtual law firm and then everything else can live inside that. So we're definitely very uh, open and agnostic and, you know, the APIs that things drive um, kind of both ways. And I think that's the future. So as we create, you know, our own, um, you know, modular set of tools, we want them to kind of, you know, be able to sing nicely and talk together with the APIs. But we also want, um, you know, other platforms to kind of be able to kind of work with us. And, you know, as, as we go on in our conversation, I'm sure we'll cover this, but we're also um, building a blockchain for the legal industry. And that's, you know, creating a substrate layer, like an operating system for things to run on. So, yeah, so definitely the way we think about things. And, and I know we've had these conversations. I think Inspire Legal was a good good place for that in terms of APIs, platforms. And, and you've done some great writing on this because I think it's a, a, a rising topic and becoming super important as more apps are proliferated into the market. And, um, you know, uh, people are, are concerned about, you know, where data is getting captured. And, you know, Thomson Reuters is creating more of a, app store and, and all these things become really more important. So we're definitely kind of um, very much of the mind that these uh, platforms need to be kind of um, playing nice with each other and open and, and using APIs to kind of you know, leverage data and send data around as well. Isn't that wild to see? Like, um, I mean, years ago, a few years ago, even there were like these walled gardens and everyone's like, all right. And then I mean that with respect to all the different, if you look at Apple, like you have these walled gardens and you have to act in that certain way and it's difficult to sort of interact beyond that, but now all those walls are sort of coming down, which I think is going to be a fantastic thing for the entire legal ecosystem, um, where you'll be able to interact with different apps and data. Um, and I think that's just going to be great for everyone. So you had mentioned, uh, I'm really curious about the legal aid. Um, what what does that look like? What does that, the crowdfunding component to that, what does it, what does it look like for you guys? Yeah, legal aid in general is, is um, I guess the, to, to lay, lay out the broader mission, it's really a technology company that is trying to reduce the justice gap, and that can take different forms. So, um, and, and, and we're very bullish on, on blockchain too, because that's kind of where a lot of this inspiration for it started. Um, a lot of a lot of my thinking around legal aid was kind of born out of um, conversations with Chris Christoph Jones, who created the, the, the DAO, the original um, kind of DAO on Ethereum. And really, um, you know, after that kind of didn't go so well and potentially was a security, he turned his focus <laughs> to a charity DAO. So basically uh, created a project that was like, hey, if we want to kind of use this technology in the early days, the best use of it is for charities because we can create a, a transparent organization. We can show uh, proof of value, like where money passes through. And also, um, you know, we can kind of, uh, I guess, automate all the relationships in terms of create contracts, like smart contracts or smart legal contracts for all the different, you know, relationships that a business or organization might need with its users, with, you know, who it's trying to serve. Um, and so uh, that was kind of a, a bit of an inspiration there. But there was also a law firm in Australia um, by the Salvation Army. So Salvo is legal. And um, the, the founder has since become one of our advisors, but essentially it was the world's first social enterprise law firm where, where, where Luke Geary, he broke out of the partnership model and created a, I guess a social impact law firm where all the profit generated from the lawyers who were on salaries actually, it wasn't a partnership model, all the profit went next door into a non-for-profit and helped someone off the street. And so that was super inspiring to me when, I, you know, again, I came into the legal industry as a, a someone that wasn't from a legal background and I kind of started learning all right, there's this thing called the justice gap. Okay, um, you know, 5 billion people, like almost everyone on the planet can't afford to access this this kind of industry. And so that was fascinating to me that, you know, one you know, uh, law firm in Australia was trying to solve the problem this way. And so bringing together, um, uh, I guess, what Christoph was working on with the, the charity DAO and what Luke was doing in his law firm, it's really when I was like, okay, how could you scale an organization uh, potentially on a, on a blockchain so it could be, autonomous over time and be a public good that could, you know, long live beyond myself. Um, and that's really where Legal Array was born. So the crowdfunding is kind of like the first little bit of breaking off some of that, um, you know, uh, thinking and that technology and, and using blockchain to track 
donations to social um, you know, justice cases. And so the second part of that is building out the world's largest pro bono network as a virtual legal clinic. And that's what we're kind of busy building now. And that's, as I mentioned, where the, the, the bigger law firms come in. But to kind of just uh, zoom in a little bit on the, the, the impact that legal rates had on the social um, you know, um, justice space, uh, some of the cases we've had have been quite high profile. Like one, one case on there now is um, against uh, you know, it's a family that's uh, suing um, Khalifa Haftar, uh, a Libyan warlord. So you know, it's not it's not a small mm. kind of case. Um, but but really, uh, one of the other ones um, that's quite high profile at this stage, and it's raised, I think, to date about thirty thousand um, dollars for for the family and and the lawyers working on this case is is for for um, Paul Rusisabinga, who was the Hotel Rwanda hero, and so he was depicted by John, Don Cheadle in the in the um, um, movie Hotel Rwanda. And essentially, he saved you know over twelve hundred people from genocide um, in, in Rwanda. But he's a, a Belgian citizen and a U.S. resident, and he was basically kidnapped by the Rwandan government. So Paul Kagame, basically a dictator, um, you know, has had this thorn in his side because Paul Paul um, had become uh, a, a face of human rights and really outspoken against his regime. And so he was taken to uh, Rwanda um, in a ruse where basically they, they tricked him into going into a speaking engagement in a nearby country, kidnapped him in Dubai, and he woke up in a prison uh, without due process, without representation. And so uh, we were approached by his family who, who couldn't take this case anywhere. And so, um, you know, thankfully, uh, this has garnered a lot of global attention now since we've hosted the case. And, you know, the EU parliament um, recently passed three resolutions to say this was an unlawful uh, 37 Congress members um, through um, a bipartisan letter uh, actually wrote to um, you know Joe Biden saying this is also again unlawful. It's going against um, all the global treaties and um, it's 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 basically a, an unfair trial. And then also and you know he could have been extradited if they really had uh, evidence to kind of uh, try him for terrorism. And then basically um, you know now the State Department's involved, Amal Clooney's foundation, Trial Watch is kind of monitoring the case, and the uh, American Bar Association's Human Rights Center is also monitoring the case. So there's a lot of you know eyes on this case now, going, hey, this is kind of really uh, against everything that we stand for, uh, you know, in, in the justice world. So we're hoping that you know the next stage, um, you know, Paul's an, an older guy and he's kind of sitting in jail now. There's COVID, there's all types of things. So you know things aren't looking great, but we're, we're hoping that you know his family can come. Um, and get a successful outcome through the result of you know launching this platform. That is amazing, honestly. Um, I, I didn't realize the depth and breadth of that. So obviously the cause is, is incredible, but uh, the work sounds also equally as incredible. Holy smokes. Um, along those lines, one thing I did see was something about uh, the NFTs and the charity auctions and stuff like that that might be coming up. But um, obviously maybe we could set the context for NFTs, but um, how is that in the blockchain world as a sort of a section of that uh, non-fungible tokens? How is that playing a role in this space? Yeah, I think it's going to play a role in, in every vertical, um, not necessarily just, um, you know, the creative space, which is kind of uh, really taking off uh, right now. Um, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm in a chat group with a bunch of friends like Beeple. Um, and, and Blau and, and these guys have kind of, you know, broken every kind of record around, you know, sales and, and created a real, um, you know, a lot of momentum around this, uh, especially in this bull market. So I think <laughs> what's really um, interesting about this technology is that, again, just using the framework of, of, of blockchains allow us to create digital scarcity. It, it's really um, letting us own parts of the internet that we couldn't own before. And, you know, you're seeing the early examples kind of in memes where, you know, some people that created memes that became quite prolific on the internet and kind of, you know, I guess once the creator um, brings them to life, they kind of escape their possession in terms of ownership. They're kind of, you know, selling rights to that now. So essentially, um, you know, that uh, type of ownership, like creating a digital certificate of ownership is really going to expand to all types of things from, someone's actual uh, credentials, like their, their own identity. It's going to expand into, you know, a certification, like you might have, you know, got a, a law degree and it could come as an NFT potentially over time. Um, you know, it could be a property title. So anything that really kind of gives someone, um, you know, a, a digital right um, could end up being an NFT. And so the way we're using it in this early um, uh, stage of, of legal aid is we're actually, we're, we're running something called Justice Heroes, which is a series of artworks 
because uh, the pandemic's kind of brought to a standstill the ability to go out and raise funds from, you know, a charity gala night or a, an auction and things that you do in person, even being on the street, you know, like, you know, um, you know soliciting kind of donations has become kind of, kind of like a, a thing of the past. So we've had to get creative. Um, Legal Aid is a non-for-profit. It's established in the U.S. as a 501c3. It's a charity in Australia. And now we're working with some prominent law firms in the U.K. So they're, they're setting up um, our U.K., um, and the goal for it is to become a global kind of, you know, organization, really, again, going back to this North Star of, 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 of reducing the justice gap. And so what we're doing right now is this Justice Heroes series is, is a, a, a series of collaborations and NFT auctions. So the first one is with Jose Delbo, who created, um, you know, uh, comics and uh, things as famous as the, the Beatles Yellow Submarine um, kind of series. Yeah. He, he drew all of that. He, yeah, DC and Marvel comics, so Batman, Spider-Man, Wonder Woman, crazy stuff. And so he, he's really early into the NFT space. And you know, his last auction did about $1.85 million where he had Wonder Woman and, and created these um, real powerful um, uh, series around uh, w- woman empowerment. And, and, you know, that did quite well. And so um, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate to kind of know a few of these other um, kind of artists. And so we, we've been collaborating this past week with um, uh, Diplo, a famous producer. So that's really raising funds for us to kind of combat the eviction uh, crisis that's happening in the U.S. So, you know, anywhere from 10 to 40 million people, depending on you know, how these stimulus packages get rolled out and depending on when the government kind of um, end these moratoriums, these rental moratoriums, um, you know, potentially going to be kicked out. So, um, you know, there's... There's anywhere from I think the last stat I saw was one to four, uh, one out of four, sorry, um, you know, families with children right now are behind on the rent in the US. Mm. So, um, you know, it's great the vaccines are rolling out, but, you know, the reality of this situation and the reality of this last kind of, you know, 18 months is really going to kick in when these moratoriums finish. And so what we're doing is through our video technology and, and through the legal array platform that we're building is that we're um, creating a, a global network of, of volunteer lawyers that can you know, um, distribute their, their services through video um, and basically, uh, again, creating the world's largest pro bono network. So we've signed up some of the world's largest organizations already um, in terms of you know, major law firms, major law schools, non-for-profits, um, major corporate teams as well. And essentially, um, you know, what we're doing is, is working with legal services organizations who are at the coalface but have a shortage of lawyers. And, and there's some crazy statistics as well around the representation um, in, in housing court and, and, and just simple things like, you know, filing for your moratorium that you, um, if you want to get exempt from, from being evicted, the simple things. But a lot of people lack the know-how and education to be able to kind of handle these complex technical um, uh, legal forms. And so, you know, 90, I think 94% of people, um, uh, around 90% of people turn up to housing court unrepresented, but 94% of people that are represented win their cases. So it just shows you, again, something as simple as, um, you know, yeah, yeah, so legal representation can kind of really change a lot of lives. And so, yeah, so basically we're doing uh, uh, this, this exciting kind of auction and then uh, it's a series. So then, you know, we're, we're, we're doing... Um, justice icon. So the first one is Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and she basically turns notorious into notorious uh, RBG. <laughs> yeah, notorious RBG. She kind of already is a superhero, but she um, she basically it's a bit of a hammer of uh, Thor kind of uh, thing with her gavel. She gets uh, it gets struck by lightning, and you know again we're working with an animated group as well that are contributing. Everyone's doing this pro bono, which is fantastic, and you know, all proceeds go to kind of launching these clinics so basically that's um icon number one and we're aiming to just do all these different icons that that are just icons through history and and bring them to life in a superhero kind of way and again it'll be a different artist and a different musician um and we're talking to some really exciting ones right now yeah honestly that is innovative stuff seriously so you're using cutting edge stuff that's now becoming more and more popular with nfts so the non-fungible tokens on the blockchain so people can get that ownership of something and you're combining that with like powerful people like Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Yeah, it's just she's such a again like and the reason we've 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 chosen to go with her is just that she kind of stands for everything that um it, you know especially this this last you know um, couple of years has been a very trying time from you know living in the US you know exposed to the the kind of election year and you know all the things happening in courts there and the pandemic and someone like her really kind of you know rises above and kind of becomes a a, a real kind of beacon for what, you know, what, what people should stand for and, and you know, kind of draw inspiration from. So we're really thrilled to have that as the first piece. Yeah. Amazing soul. No, no question whatsoever. 
All right, so I'm I'm curious about um, how you go about explaining. All right, what level are we at with blockchain in the legal industry? When I when I started talking about it with uh, firms of all sizes, corporations and government agencies, I guess back in 2016, people were so skeptical. They're like, nope, not going to happen. And I, and I totally understand that. Are you still getting a decent amount of pushback or not as much pushback anymore? And then where do you see this stuff going uh, once people start to more it's, firmly <laughs> grasp it? Yeah, it's such a fascinating, it's such a fascinating question because, um, you know, timing is the most important thing with, with you know, with all technology. And so, um, you know, this, this past couple of weeks, you know, if it's, it, it just blows the mind, like these dog coins, um, you know, I, I can just imagine being a lawyer and, and maybe Joe, someone that you, you spoke about to five years ago, telling him blockchain is going to change the world five years ago. And they're, they're sitting here now watching Elon Musk shilling dog coins. So, um, I think, <laughs> you, you, I think you need to peel back the layers to see, even with those types of things, what the real fascinating movement is, but. But yeah, you know, being in the legal industry and, and you know the, all the things that we just spoke about, like analog checks, you know, doing things in a manual way. So it's kind of a big leap to start really talking about like digital contracts and all this type of stuff. And and I think um, there's definitely a lot of, especially you know, for, for myself, we, we've got a group of you know over a thousand lawyers now in this blockchain for law group. We've, you know, so there's definitely people that have been in the trenches doing the hard work and kind of immersing themselves, uh, you know, especially as lawyers in, in this field. But I think it's still super early. Like when you look at, um, you know, Elon Musk, you know, given he's got 50 million kind of followers, um, can can shake a whole market with one tweet. I think that just gives you a little bit of a sense of how early this market is. And it's, you know, still very speculative. And there's, but, but my, my thesis on this bull market this time around was that, okay, coins like Dogecoin that have had the, you know, time in the sun, would actually disappear and fall by the wayside because there'll be so much more of these mature projects with utility now that are doing great things, but it's a complete opposite. So what do I know? <laughs> but I think what it is doing, and this is the broader movement, is that it's it's democratizing and it's 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 consumerizing uh, cryptocurrency in a way that we didn't expect, and that's what's you know, super interesting because there is this whole generation now, you know, getting exposed to crypto in a new way. Yet they want to get rich, they want to do what everyone else does in business as well, but it's fascinating that um, you know the blockchain and, and in general, like social media and the internet, um, now allow us to coordinate large groups of people. And I think um, blockchains are going to be even better at doing that because you know writing protocols are essentially you know writing rules to coordinate large groups of people. And I often say myself that you know like the law is like you know um, the operating system for society. It's kind of the rules that govern how we work. And blockchains now are going to become kind of that next step where we kind of, you know, write the rules of how we want things to kind of work. And so it's, it's really fascinating to me. I think it's still early. I think lawyers are kind of getting their, their, you know, touch points with, with crypto and blockchain in, in a different way. In, in the initial days, there's a lot of the Silk Road and I think that's thankfully changing. So it was always nefarious, um, you know, uh, discussions around, you know, money laundering. And I think people are realizing, you know what, no cash is used for that. It's far better at doing, you know, uh, bad stuff than, than crypto. But now um, I think lawyers are getting exposed to crypto because they might have a client that wants them to do an ICO. They might have a um, someone that wants to try and, you know, create a proof of concept for, uh, um, you know, maybe a supply chain and they might get involved in smart contracts from that side of things. Or they might have uh, a fintech company or financial services company that's dabbling, um, you know, at the interface of a, a DeFi product or, you know, some type of financial product or, you know, they want to accept crypto payments in the business. So I think before you know it, um, you know, there's going to be all these little things, NFTs, right? I, there's a lot of lawyers you know, now trying to learn about, oh, my, you know, my um, musician client who I never thought was going to ask me about crypto is now asking me about um, the, the legal rights um, around an NFT that they're, they're kind of selling in an auction and, you know, what happens to the commercial rights, the non-commercial rights. So I think, you know, no matter um, how you look at it, this stuff's going to bleed into our lives until um, essentially um, blockchains become invisible, like Wi-Fi. We don't talk about TCP yes. IP or packets of information flying through the air. NFTs now, I think a lot of the hype is around the actual NFT being involved in the digital artwork. Eventually that will flip and we'll just look at you know, the artwork in, in its own right. But yes, we'll look at the digital scarcity of it and things like Beeple's $69 million auction will become iconic 
um, you know, like the first, uh, it'll become like the Mona Lisa, it'll become like the first edition of Spider-Man comic or something like that. And so that's super fascinating. But I think the technology that, that drives these things will become invisible because, you know, when I, when I collected basketball cards at school, you know, and I was looking for the Michael Jordan rookie card, that was quite cool. But it was a piece of cardboard at the end of the day. <laughs> now this is really cool. Like, you know, NBA Top Shots. Um, that you know has like real time stats. I can sell it. The uh, the creator can get like you know royalties. There's a full history of who's owned it, and you know the card can evolve and give me rights into all these other products. So my kind of you know Michael Jordan rookie card, you know a piece of cardboard uh, starts looking quite boring. And and we no longer talk about the the cardboard being that technology, the paper. It's the actual um, you know the 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 product. And I think that's how far we've got to go with um, with blockchain still. So it's still super early. But, um, you know, there's a lot of stuff that has to happen with infrastructure, with, you know, wallets and this kind of, you know, marrying up of right now, it's kind of like Web 2.0 needs to kind of butt up against Web, you know, the Web 3. And we kind of need to kind of create all the bridging and all the infrastructure. And then eventually um, we'll be living in this native kind of, you know, a Web 3 kind of environment where, um, you know, blockchain, AI, all these things can kind of, you know, do their thing in, in a new and, and, and wonderful kind of way that's not, not yet possible. So it's, it's exciting, but it's super early. No, really, really well said. It's um, it's a it's a fascinating time among like the NFTs and the whole decentralized finance, so DeFi, and that seems to be the area that people are, are really spending a lot of time on these days. Um, with respect to this idea or concept, and I'd love to get your thoughts on it of um, going bankless. So imagine a time where you really don't need a bank anymore for currency. You don't need them for loans. Um, you don't need for the swaps or any of these other fancy mechanisms that are in play because they can be done using the smart contracts on the blockchain and they are possibly vastly more efficient. Um, do you think that that's hypothetically possible in like 10 years where people won't necessarily need a bank? Um, you know, again, one, one thing I find fascinating, uh, and Joe, even with a question like that is like, um, and, and I mean, you know this better than anyone else actually, but um, it, it, we sometimes kind of looking at these use cases, wonder if they're going to happen or if this will be our future. And we really just got to look a little bit closer and go, you know what, it's already actually happening. So, um, you know, if you look to countries like uh, even Iran, where there's embargoes, you look at, um, you know, um, countries that are kind of been suffocated financially or have had really volatile banking systems and, and, and really kind of like, you know, Venezuela where, you know, your, your money overnight becomes kind of, you know, worth nothing. These people are already kind of jumping onto, um, uh, you know, crypto and they're already using, you know, in Iran, people are sending Bitcoin across the world to send their kids to, you know, to, to Ivy League schools because they can't send them money any other way because the banks have actually um, obviously stopped, you know, servicing those nations, right? So there's, these things are already happening. And, you know, I, I was, I think Peter McCormick was, you know, um, who's obviously quite outspoken about um, uh, Bitcoin and was replying to Elon Musk saying that, you know, the lightning network is already working because he's, he's basically buying his morning coffee. I think it was in El Salvador or somewhere. And um, <laughs> basically saying, you know, people are, are drawn to these systems because out of necessity. So we don't really realize um, how our money works or, or the need for these types of systems until our, our, it really breaks, right? And in the Western world, we're pretty fortunate that, you know, in, in Australia, we missed the last, uh, you know, GFC, we missed the recession because our banking yes. system's quite, you know, solid, right? And it kind of holds up kind of okay, but it's only when you're in these countries and, you know, like in Greece or Cyprus and you wake up and, you know, fractional reserve banking or your, you know, your, your, your um, bank account kind of just all of a sudden disappears overnight. Um, that's when you kind of start questioning the system. That's where, you know, people like um, Andreas Antonopoulos really kind of preach about having an open, permissionless, censorship-proof kind of system really works. And and also in that same vein, when people talk about DAOs and they think it's this thing that's off into the future, um, you know, you just got to look at Bitcoin and, you know, to go back to your question about banking and being bankless, it's a DAO in the sense it's a decentralized autonomous organization because it does everything a bank does. It lets me store value. It lets me transfer that value, but there's no security guard at the front door. There's no CEO. There's no bank manager that I can go talk to. And, you know, now off the back of that, there's all these financial products where I can kind of, you know, um, lend and borrow and, and do all types of things. So, you know, I can even borrow against the NFT now and put that as collateral into a smart contract. <laughs> so, um, you know, 
this world has already kind of been built. It's just really a, a timing thing, I think. And, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of, um, and I love how Mark Andreessen talks about this type of stuff because he was there when the internet kind of took off as well and he kind of sees the parallels. But, you know, there was just something in the early, you know, stages of when this, you know, Bitcoin kind of, uh, technology came to fruition and it was that you know you could create digital scarcity for the first time and that was novel but everything else was kind of like toy-like like it wasn't really mature we're just now kind of seeing that maturation and that's going to take time but but that digital scarcity we can apply that again to to anything and that's what's so fascinating to me about this is that it incorporates kind of philosophy um you know monetary policy computer science encryption technology um, you know, game theory, it brings all these legal standing, like, you know, what, what are the legalities around these types of things? It brings all these things together in this, you know, huge confluence of different elements and we're just really working it all out and it's kind of, um, it boggles the mind, like the possibilities and that's really what's exciting because I think it is something that, going back to these dog coins, um, the real <laughs> movement there is that it's 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 actually creating a 24-7 market, like it's, it's really a new market Anyone with a computer or internet access can actually get online and actually participate in these things. So it's kind of democratizing wealth and bringing someone that couldn't even open a bank account the ability to kind of you know invest in something to be involved in the financial movement, and it, it's and it's decentralized. So it can kind of you know be censorship proof and not not closed down by the banks that have a vested interest in not in, in it not succeeding. So I think you know that's the real underlying movement that I think you know will get past and and kind of. Yes, there's, you know, regulatory concerns and all types of things that we still haven't worked out. And that's, it's a new era, you know, it's like a, it's a whole new door and we haven't worked out how that's going to um, pan out yet. But it's really exciting to see something like this as a technology, giving someone a bank account that could no longer, you know, that couldn't any longer participate in the financial system because they just didn't have banking infrastructure around them. So I think that's super fascinating. Oh, I, I completely agree. I think there's so much opportunity right now for, for everyone. I mean, for lawyers to lean into this conversation. Um, a lot of the time that I spend on this is just around pure education, which I think is is kind of critical. I Maybe I've overblown that in my head, but it's critical for people to understand <laughs> not just the technology, but its impact, what it can do. And then you get the experts who uh, know the law, know the regulations, know everything about what they do. And then they can just just blow up whatever section they're in, just like really advance that that space. Um, all right, so one last thing that I'd love to, to touch on outside of whole, the whole blockchain and, and legal space is what you did with uh, the Global Legal Tech Report. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, what it is and, and what people can learn more about it? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, the Global Legal Tech Report, which is expanded this year into the Global Legal Tech Directory as well, which uh, Thomson Reuters is, is, is helping to support is, is basically, it was something organic uh, grown out of the Alta community, Australian Legal Technology Association, which um, I helped kind of found in Australia and became a bit of a, it created a bit of a movement uh, across the, the globe as well, because the excitement and, and the, I guess the surfacing of new technology that it brought to the Australian ecosystem uh, was kind of, um, you know, then brought into the UK, into uh, the ASEAN region and APAC and, and you know, um, uh, yeah, the Asia Pacific region and into Europe. So what was happening was there was a lot of legal tech kind of, you know, starting to blossom, but there was no real formal um, bodies or groups to kind of help, you know, be a beacon for the people that were actually in the trenches building the technology, trying to sell it. And so off the back of um, Alta, I saw a broader opportunity to kind of really bring together all the people, all the stakeholders that were kind of, you know, um, doing this across the globe and really bring in a new level of research to see, hey, what's going on in this sector? So, you know, we were fortunate to bring in um, uh, people like uh, ILTA, all the acronyms, uh, UKLTA, ILTA. <laughs> yep. And so, you know, it was, yeah, it's really alphabet soup. And so basically there was, I think, 14 associations we brought together all the way from, you know, Asia, Africa, and what we did was we created the world's largest, I guess, in the legal tech industry, it was the largest exercise ever done because we had all these associations. And then locally, we, we, we basically ran a survey to kind of, you know, bring about, um, again, a, a new um, level of data from, from this industry. And so that's been super exciting. And, you know, as, as I mentioned, this year, it's going to expand into a directory. So it'll, it'll basically, we, we're, we've, 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 I think it's over 4,000 companies now we've surfaced. 
And so um, we'll have a more comprehensive report this year. Last year was a, a great learning exercise. The inaugural year, we did a bunch of you know, virtual events around it and webinars where we kind of discussed the findings. And it really helps inform the associations, but it really helps inform the builders and also VCs and law firms that, you know, trying to use the technology. And so the directory will be this, this one-stop resource where just say as a legal tech buyer, whether you're a CIO or a law firm, You'll be able to kind of, you know, uh, see the whole industry indexed and you can basically, uh, I guess, shop for legal tech by, you know, you might say you might be in the UK, you might be a general counsel and you might be looking for, you know, some uh, CLM tools. You can actually filter through and kind of see those, um, you know, companies. You'll be able to kind of hit a button and, and book a demonstration with those organizations. So. So yeah, so we're really, you know, it's a rising tide lifts all boats. So we're really just trying to raise the profile and discovery of, of legal tech. And so um, really excited that this year be launching the directory in partnership with Thompson Reuters. And that's going to be um, an exciting kind of uh, project to get off the ground. I mean, that's amazing. No, absolutely. Well, thank you for sharing that. And thank you very much for joining today. I really, really look, this is amazing to hear about everything that's going on uh, in your space. I don't know how you do it. I seriously don't because there's so much that you're involved with. Um, but there's so many great things too that, uh, that are coming out of this. So thank you for sharing all of this. Um, and you've you've maybe I have not eaten all today. Uh, it's it's for uh, it's roughly six o'clock <laughs> at night at where I am. I know it's morning for you. Um, so I'm I'm actually thinking about getting some cuckoo sabzi, some sabzi polo, and maybe some uh, gorma sabzi <laughs> later. Some uh, uh, very man, good Persian I think, food. I think, uh, we're gonna have to. We're going to have to catch up after this and you're going to have to kind of uh, tell me whether you're you're a spy or, or how you picked up these, uh, <laughs> these Lots of Persian friends. Because, uh, lots of Persian friends. All right. I, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Stevie, thank you again. Really appreciate it. Um, and uh, hopefully we'll talk soon. Yeah, Joe, thanks for having me on. And uh, just to finish off, you know, you're a very inspiring man. I got to say in the legal uh, tech industry, um, you know, the, the work that you're doing in, in raising the profile of uh, you know, blockchain and just innovation generally in, in law firms is inspiring for some, from, you know, from my background as well. So I appreciate all the work you're doing and thanks for having me on. Well, the Bitcoin's in the in the ether sending your way. So thank, <laughs> thank you for that. <laughs> Amazing. You're too kind. All right. Take care and thanks, everyone. Bye. The Hearing. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Hearing as much as I've enjoyed hosting it today. Please join me for our exciting upcoming episodes where amazing people and their remarkable stories meet the cross-section of the law and technology. If you would like, please give us a rating. Feel free to review us and subscribe to the podcast. That way you'll be notified of new episodes as they come out. Also, if you would like to connect with me on Twitter, it's at Joe Raz, that's J-O-E, R-A-Z-Z. Thank you, and we'll see you next time. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.